If you're new with us, we are studying the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> we intentionally started it during uh, the Advent season, uh, as we uh, find in uh, the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is narrating for us uh, the events of the birth of John the Baptist and the, the events of uh, the birth nativity around uh, the Lord Jesus. And today we have uh, Zechariah's song. We looked at Mary's song last week uh, as he is considering the salvation that the Lord uh, has brought to uh, the nations. And so we invite you in on our study uh, this morning as we work our way through it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit now would illuminate our minds to understand your word but not only understand it, but impress its truth upon our hearts. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Alice Roosevelt Longworth was the daughter of former uh, American President Theodore Roosevelt. She was a writer and prominent socialite, and she wrote this about her dad, Quote, my father always wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding, and the baby at every christening. In other words, he wanted to be, in her words, the center of everything. And many have suggested that the same could be said of her, and that the two butted heads often because they were so similar. But theologically, that could be said of us as well. Due to the fall, due to the presence of sin in the world and in our hearts, we are inclined to self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. And in the words of Paul Tripp, we are, we are hardwired for glory, and we need divine grace in order to behold the glory that we were meant to pursue. This is what Tripp writes in one of his new books. We are glory-oriented human beings. We are attracted to glorious things, whether it's an exciting drama, an enthralling piece of music, or the best meal ever. God built that glory orientation into us so that it would drive us to him. Because we are glory oriented, our lives will always be shaped by the pursuit of some kind of glory. Sin makes us glory thieves. Though God created us to live lives propelled by the, by the, by the glory of God, sin causes us to live for ourselves. We demand to be in the center of our world, the one place that should be for God and God alone. Only God's glory can satisfy the glory hunger in our hearts. God's grace alone has the power to defeat the glory war in our hearts. Amen. The good news of the gospel is that God has sent his son into the world to save us, and the coming of Jesus and this salvation has brought numerous benefits to us, one of which is this. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Jesus saves us from our addiction to ourselves. Jesus frees us from this self-centeredness, and he enables us to see the glory that we were always meant to pursue. God does this by his mercy. He does this by his grace, turning self-centered people into Christ-centered people. And that's why I love the Gospel of Luke, how it opens, because it opens with this, this eruption of exuberant praise and joy, because what is central here is the glory of God. What is central here is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so those two go together. A satisfied heart in the glory of God and a joyful heart. 
Last week we looked at Mary's song, the Magnificat. It's the first of four incarnation songs in Luke 1 and 2. Today we're looking at what is often referred to as the Benedictus, another Latin word that comes from uh, the first word of Zechariah's song, that word blessed. And then we see the angels singing in chapter 2, and then finally of Simeon singing. And there are others all the way through, the shepherds uh, and others who are praising God and drawing our attention to the glory that really does satisfy our hearts. And as I mentioned last week, you could actually cut out these two songs. I mean, this is a very long chapter. We're <laughs> finally finishing chapter one. It's got 80 verses. Um, and what, what occupies much of this chapter is, uh, are these two songs. But the songs don't contribute anything really to the narrative flow of the story. You could cut them out and not lose anything. And I think that really speaks to us. What is it that Luke means for us to see in including these long hymns? I think he's showing us how we are to respond to this narrative. How do we respond to what's happening in these chapters with love and adoration to God? We're meant to join in these songs, and that's what I want us to do with the Benedictus today. The whole song, if you're looking at it there, is about the, the salvation that the Messiah will bring. Why is God to be blessed? Right? Because he has set in motion, Zechariah knows, this salvation that he has in mind and has had in mind through the Messiah. It's a song of salvation. And salvation is a mega theme in the Gospel of Luke. He speaks of it again and again and again. Now, if you, if you just had a baby, especially a baby like this, it's a it's a, you know, only God could do this, as we looked at previously, Elizabeth being advanced in years. I love that little expression. I'm going to start using it more often instead of old, advanced in years. Um, she, she's able to conceive and have a child. You would probably write your song only about your son. Your, your, after all, this is a significant son, the forerunner to Jesus Christ, and yet only two verses in this song speak about John the Baptist. The whole song is about the Messiah. Even when John the Baptist is mentioned in verses 76 and 7, it's in relation to Jesus Christ. And so I think here we see Zechariah modeling, before John is, is, is out of the womb, what John's ministry will be, pointing others to Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see one other note before we look at the text uh, in, in uh, detail. The song draws heavily on the Old Testament, very similar to Mary's song. There, there are allusions to the Davidic king. There's allusions to, and uh, actually more than an allusion, a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> there are several verses that, that we hear in Zechariah's song. And Luke is the one Gentile author, or the one Gentile gospel writer of the four gospel writers. And even the Gentile, who has a real desire for the Gentiles, to know this salvation, speaks about the significance of the Old Testament and shows us really the importance of understanding the Old Testament in order to rightly appreciate Christ. To put it another way, you cannot understand the Old Testament without Jesus, and you can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. And you wonder why a lot of people don't appreciate the Christmas message this time of year and I would submit to you, a lot of people don't appreciate the Christmas message because they don't appreciate the Old Testament. Amen. 
They don't understand that what has happened is Jesus is fulfilling the types and shadows and echoes and categories that the Old Testament gives us, which gives rise to this song of Zechariah. Why is he singing like he's singing? Because of this anticipation for all the years, all the expectation, all the illusions, all the types, all the shadows, and now he's here. So if you don't know the backstory, right, then what you see this time of year, a lot of people see, I think, are the, the, the animals and the manger and a lot of the sentimentality that goes along with Christmas. Well, this song arises in Zechariah's heart because Jesus is the yes to God's great promises, right? He is the fulfillment of it all. Now, we could really spend weeks in this song, and if I were a Puritan, I probably would do that. Uh, some have called me the tattooed Puritan, uh, but we're going to do it in, in one, one particular message, all right? So, verses 57 to 66, we see, first of all, the birth of John. We'll hit that quickly. That's the context of Zechariah's song, and then we'll look at his song, okay? So, we enter here in verse 57, a very festive occasion. Friends and family and neighbors are gathered together with their champagne or their welches as there's, they're going to celebrate the fact that God has done the impossible. Yes, sir. He has given a child to this couple who are advanced in years. And the people around the birth express wonder in three ways. First, they express joy at the child's birth to such an old couple. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. John's birth is an occasion of celebration. There's great joy. Again, just running right through the opening chapters of, of Luke. This is a time of fulfillment. Luke wants us to see in verse 57, it was the time for her to give birth, and she bore a son. You can hear that language in the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. God is fulfilling his promises. If you haven't read Luke in a while, uh, Luke 1.13, this was promised to this couple. Um, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, the angel said, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And now that has happened. Luke 1 and 2 is showing us that God keeps his promises. And the word reaches the neighbors, verse 58, and they rejoice in God's mercy, that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Zechariah's song, later, verse 78, he will speak of the mercy of God, speaking of the coming of Jesus, that the tender mercy of our God has been displayed to us. And so today we're reminded of God's great mercy and that God shows his mercy to the little people. Right? to the humble Elizabeth, to the humble Mary, and to us. God, in his great mercy, takes notice of us. In a flat in lower Manhattan in 1874, there was a blind lady who heard a knock at the door, and she went and answered the door, and it was a visitor who put $10 into her hand. She had been praying for God to provide because she couldn't pay the rent, and lady later, Uh, Fanny Crosby wrote this line, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? 
for I know that whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. <laughs> Can we doubt his tender mercies today? He has been merciful to us in manifold ways, and this mercy that the people see here causes them to rejoice. And their rejoicing is also a fulfillment of what was promised in chapter 1. If you remember verse 14, not only are they told what his name shall be, but it says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And these things are happening exactly the way it was foretold. So the, the, the neighbors here express joy at the birth of John. They express wonder at the naming of John, verses 59 to 63 as well. When the time came to, to name John, the, the people spill their drinks because it's not what they're anticipating. Verse 59 to 63, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, you shall call his name, you shall call, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. If you weren't with us, you may need to know this. Zechariah can't talk right now. <laughs> uh, he, he was made mute early on because he did not believe in the promise. But as we'll see, his tongue is loosened here. And they made signs to him inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. So the naming takes place here on the, the day of circumcision. Uh, that was unusual, but there were precedence for it, and the crowd expected him to be named after his father. That was a very regular custom, to be named after your father or your grandfather, and so they object to the naming of John, but Elizabeth knows what his name will be, right? And this, this surprises the crowd, and so apparently, we, we, you know, Zechariah communicated that vision in the temple to Elizabeth, presumably by writing it to her, and that the angel revealed to him that his name would be John, so she knows this. And the crowd protests, saying, nobody in the family has this name. Why this strange name? Not that it was a strange name in the time, but that it wasn't related to their family. So the name John violated all their customs. And since Zechariah can't speak, they're thinking, well, maybe Elizabeth is acting independently. <laughs> Let's get Zechariah to weigh in on this. And so what does he say in, in 62 and 63? His name is John. It's not even that it shall be John, but it is John. You see, Zechariah knew that the angel had already revealed this. This was a done deal. We're not naming him. He was already named. Amen. And what this is showing is Zechariah, I think, growing in his own trust in God's promises. He is growing in his submission to God's will. I don't name him. He was named. And verse 63 says, and they all wondered. They were all marveling. What are they marveling at? That a husband and wife can agree. <laughs> right? Now they're marveling on the insistence of this unusual name. And now, what happens in the narrative is the period of, of silence in Zechariah's life, this period that has been used to sanctify him, is now over. And what does Zechariah do when he can now speak? Verse 64 to 6 shows us how the, the, the people express wonder at the loosening of this priest's tongue. He immediately, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke 
blessing God. That's Zechariah. I mean, he has been, he's been quiet for a good period of time. This guy who had this angelic vision, and now he gets to speak. And so he praises God, and great fear came upon the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judah. And all who heard them laid them in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord is upon him? His, his blessing God gives rise to fear. They see the, the, the Almighty at work here, and it gives rise to discussion. They don't know what to make of all of this. These things are laid up in their hearts. They, that is, they had a strong emotional reaction to the news, and they got this lingering question, what kind of child is this going to be? What kind of guy is this going to be? And he's going to be quite a guy, isn't he? And they recognize that the hand of the Lord is at work here. God is at work in a special way, and they're left to wonder what's happening. God is on the move. 400 years of silence. Zechariah, his silence broken. John is here. And so we see in this opening narrative that God keeps his word exactly the way this this had been told to this couple. And God's servants, even leading servants like Zechariah, can grow in their trust in God and obedience to God. And we see that God's work of grace and mercy calls for praise. And that's what we turn to next, this song of Zechariah. You can break the song down in two parts. It literally in Greek, there's just one sentence in verse 68 to 75. But you don't need Greek to see how this is broken down. You see in verse 76 that the attention shifts when Zechariah says, and you, child. So what has been spoken of in verses 68 to 75 is not John, but about the Messiah. And then after speaking of John in verses 76 and 7, he goes back and picks up his train of thought speaking about the Messiah. We see in verse 67 of the context that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. So this is significant because what, what we have here in front of us is not just some random guy's journal and his reflections, uh, but rather God's own word, a word that has been preserved for us. And it's a prophecy in that he is, he is going to tell in this song what's going to unfold and how things are going to unfold. And as I mentioned, it's ultimately a song about the salvation that the Messiah brings. Notice all these salvation words as you just glance at it. Salvation, saved, delivered, right? You got these beautiful images of the sunrise visiting us, of light coming to those who are in darkness. And so Zechariah essentially answers a question for us, why do we praise God today? And his answer is for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. That's why we praise God. That's why we sing about him and not about us. So look at this first section. I call it praise for the Messiah's salvation. He blesses the Lord, verse 68. Common way to introduce a song of thanks. This is a song of thanksgiving. And you notice the tense in verse 68 and following is in the past tense. And even though these events haven't happened, Zechariah is speaking of them as if they have already happened because God's promises are that sure. And the first 
image that he gives us of the Messiah's salvation is that he has visited and redeemed his people. Very powerful image here. Visit is a significant word, a root word from which we get the word pastor. And it appears at various points in redemptive history where God intervenes and does the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the, the wonderful, bringing about relief and salvation. For example, Sarah cannot conceive in Genesis 21, and it says the Lord visited her, and she gave birth to a very significant son. In the book of Ruth, there's a famine in the land, and it says the Lord visited his people and brought about bread. And as you know, the Messiah would come through that line, through that, that provision that God had to spare their lives. We read later in Luke 7 that when Jesus went to visit the widow of Nain, her son had died. Jesus raises the son to life, gives the lady her child back, and the people say, the Lord has visited us. Same word. That is, they recognized that God had done this. Amen. Right? And in James 1.27, uh, he also uses that word, that we are to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That is, to, to get involved, to get engaged, to intervene. And here it is, Zechariah speaks of the ultimate visitation of Jesus Christ intervening into space, time, and history. He has visited us. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has come on a particular purpose of redeeming us. He visited us. He redeemed us. What does this mean? Redemption means to rescue at a high price. Today we often use the word redeem more often with sports, don't we, and other events. We say if a guy, for example, makes an error in the second inning, but he has a home run to win the game later in the game, he redeemed himself. Or in Dumb and Dumber, that great theological movie. You, you have totally redeemed yourself when he trades the, the van for a scooter. Um, but, but this is not how we think of redemption in the gospel, is it? We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot pay the price to get us out of bondage and slavery and fear. It's brought about by God's own work through his son, Jesus Christ. And the great redemption in the Old Testament was the Exodus. And I think there are many echoes of the Exodus in this song. Jesus is bringing a new Exodus, a better Exodus. He himself will be the Passover lamb to bring us out of fear and bondage. And like in Exodus, after the people are brought through the Red Sea in Exodus 14, they immediately sing to God in Exodus 15. And that's the reaction of Zechariah. How do we respond to the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ? We break forth into song. This is why we sing songs. That's why we sing songs together. This is why we don't view uh, singing in, a, in church like a performance or entertainment. It's more like family with arms around each other at Christmas time singing, even though half of us can't sing. Right? Or uh, the Boston Red Sox in the eighth inning sing Sweet Caroline. And they're not worrying about how they sing. There's a unity there. There, there's, a, there's something that brings them together, and we have the greatest of all bonds in Jesus Christ. And so we just put our heads back, and we join the song with Zechariah and with Mary. That's how we respond to redemption, with great celebration. Now, there's a political tone throughout Zechariah's song, as many were hoping for Jesus to bring about a redemption of freedom that would free people from Roman oppression, but much of that liberation will happen, as I mentioned in the scripture reading, 
at his second coming. The whole poem shows us the primary focus of Jesus' first coming, and that is of a spiritual liberation, that he would free us from our enemies, that he would forgive our sins, that he would free us to serve God. Now, verse 69 shows us something else about the Messiah's salvation, and that is his might. As it says, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So Jesus is coming from the Davidic line, and Jesus is the horn of salvation. What does that mean? It's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is said to be the horn. But Zechariah is correct to bring up this category, because the horn was a sign of strength, a sign of victory, right? It was, it was the, the deadly weapon of an animal. And there are many messianic prophecies about this one who is going to come, who's going to be the horn of David, this horn of salvation. Psalm 32, or 132 speaks of uh, the Davidic covenant, and there he says, uh, the psalmist says, may a horn sprout up for David. Very unusual phrase, right? Can you imagine greeting someone like that? May a horn sprout up for you. Uh, but it was, may, may a ruler, a mighty ruler, come out of David. We saw this image, didn't we, also in the book of Daniel, as those rulers were mentioned as being those. These are pictures of strength, of power. Our Savior is no wimp. He is the mighty one. And so when he brings liberty, he powerfully brings liberty. When he brings forgiveness, he powerfully brings forgiveness. It's decisive. It's once and for all. Jesus' salvation is powerful. And that's why we should never lose hope for those who are not yet Christians. And we think they're too far gone. And that doubt so easily can get in our hearts. But we see that Jesus is the horn of salvation. Nothing can withstand his might. Well, this is all in fulfillment, verses 70 to 73 of the prophets. As many things are spoken here, the mouth of his holy prophets, Zechariah says, that come from old, that he should save us from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So all of this, again, is, is coming as a fulfillment of what was spoken of in the scriptures from these holy prophets. And what was mentioned in those prophets, that we would be saved from our enemies, Zechariah says, that Jesus is bringing another exodus. We will be saved from sin and death and judgment. He, he very well may have Psalm 106 in his mind, as the psalmist said, yet he saved them, he's speaking of the Exodus, for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. And then in verse 10, so he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And Jesus has brought that salvation. And at his second coming, we will be saved from all of our enemies once and for all. Salvation from all who hate us. <laughs> Haters going to hate. Right, God's people have been opposed throughout history. But the Messiah, his coming, means deliverance. And his second coming means the ultimate deliverance. All of this a display of, of God's fulfilling his promises. This promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then notice in verses 73 and, and uh, to 75, the purpose of this messianic salvation is given to us. 
Why is it that he visited us? Why is it that he redeemed us? Why is it that Jesus came to save us from our enemies? Oh, it's the word that. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The goal of this salvation is that we would serve God, that we would serve him in holiness. This uh, word serve here is the word over in uh, Romans 12, offering up your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? That, uh, that, That is your true, reasonable act of service or worship. It's the idea of a worshipful life, a worshipful service. Jesus redeemed us from something for something. He rescued us from something for something. And what did he rescue us for? He rescued us for worship. He rescued us for service that pleases him, right? It's very important. Fearlessly, that is without oppression and distraction, reverently and righteously, in holiness, before him, that is before his eyes. The coming of Jesus Christ has brought us not only freedom from sin, but it's given us purpose. He's freed us from ourselves, freed us to think about others, freed us to glorify him. And so we join in the song of Zechariah. That's a pretty good song when you haven't spoken for a while, huh? Zechariah just just lets it loose, man. Um, Well, now it, it turns in verses 76 to 79, this prophecy about the forerunner and then the Messiah, as he finally mentions his own son. He's all excited about John, but he's spoken first of the Messiah, and now he speaks of John in relation to the Messiah. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. He says in verse 76 that John is the prophet of the Most High, who will prepare the way of the Lord. He is, you know, kind of like the, uh, the, the, the groom's best man. You know, the, the, a good best man has one great job, to make sure the wedding happens, right? <laughs> to make sure the, the groom and the bride get married. Yes, sir. And John fulfills that role. He wants Jesus and his church to get married. He wants to make sure that the groom gets all the attention now, the best man is not the guy who deserves the attention. It's really the mother-in-law, but work with me, right? Um, he, he is to stay out of the way so that they can be together. John is saying, I'm pointing people to Jesus Christ. He, that's what he is as the, the forerunner. As we said last week, it's like the announcer announcing the starting lineup. The announcer is not the focus. It's the, the event that's the, the focus, And John had a really important role because not only was Jesus' coming foretold, but John's coming was. As there was going to be one who would prepare the way so that people would know what to expect and how to get ready. And that's what verse uh, 77 says. What will John say? What, What does it mean exactly for him to prepare the way? Well, he's going to give people knowledge of salvation. And he's going to speak about the forgiveness of sins. Why was that important? It was important for a number of reasons. But again, there was such a political expectation of Messiah coming to topple Rome. John's role was to tell people about the kind of salvation that Jesus was going to bring. That he was going to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And so John was was preparing people with his 
his baptisms and his preaching to bring about a certain sense of need that one would come greater than him, the Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. That was John's role. And then we see finally how the Messiah is portrayed in verses 78 and 9 as Zechariah goes back to these messianic images and how, again, mercy characterizes this whole plan because of the tender mercy of our God. And he gives this beautiful, beautiful image because the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The word tender is a very deep emotional word. Literally refers to, to the bowels. It's a feeling of profound compassion. That is, Zechariah saying, at the core of God, out of deep compassion, he sent his son because of his tender mercy. And this son is portrayed as being the sunrise that shall visit us from on high. A very unique expression. There will be a sunrise out of heaven. This day spring visitor, Jesus Christ. It's a picture of hope, isn't it? It's the picture of the dawning of a new day. It's the dawn, the coming of Jesus is the dawning of a new age. Light is breaking through. And that is good news because the world is dark. And when you see the backdrop of the darkness of the world, of its sin and corruption and rebellion and hostility, the light, the dawn, causes us to rejoice. Just as the real sun gives light, so the Son of God has come into the world as the light of the world. And the purpose of this light, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's the time of year we see a lot of lights, don't we? We hang up our lights, we look at lights. Here we're told of the light of all lights. Isaiah spoke of this light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And here he says, the sunrise who will visit us from on high is going to give light to those who are in darkness and on the edge of death. What a picture here. You picture a group of travelers before reaching their destination. They're overtaken by darkness. They're sitting in pitch black darkness. They're terrified because of wild beasts around them, enemies surrounding them. What do you need if you're one of those travelers? You need the sunrise to break through. And that is what happens in the coming of Jesus Christ. The world is a dark place, and you will never find your way until you embrace Jesus Christ as your light. We are in darkness in and of ourselves. Not a popular thing to say, but it is a biblical thing to say. We are in the edge of death. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, we make a big deal about Jesus because only Jesus can bring us into this way of peace, into this light. This is not a common conception today. Tim Keller points out, well, things are dark, but we believe we can end that darkness with intellect and innovation. Years ago, he says, I read an ad in the New York Times that said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we have the light within us, and so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness in the world. 
We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. In that narrative, the human race is Messiah. But we know the human race is not Messiah. There's only one in that category, and that is Jesus Christ. He alone brings light into this dark world. He alone reverses the curse of death and gives us eternal life. And he alone can bring about unity and total peace. And the good news today is not only do we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but we anticipate the day when Jesus Christ comes again at the sunrise, will visit us again, giving way to total peace and total shalom. And there will be no more darkness, as the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, as there's no more tears and pain and grief and death and funerals and locking of our doors and the needing of security. Because Jesus Christ has come to take those who are sitting in darkness, and that was us, on the edge of death. And he's shown his light, and he's led us into the way of peace. And that's the good news of Christmas. There is a peace that we want our friends to know that we have experienced. There is a peace that we now anticipate that we don't experience yet. Because we are still in this body. We are still in this world. But just as Jesus came the first time, the sunrise rise again, and we will experience this salvation in all of its fullness. And if you're not a Christian, this is available to all who respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Luke summarizes finally verse 80, John's growth, as he will summarize Jesus' growth. He became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. He was growing physically and spiritually, He was spending these pre-ministry days in preparation in the barren wilderness of Judea, just west of the Dead Sea. And so, my friends, we have in this text a call to praise God. Has the sunrise visited you from on high? Has he filled your heart today? Have you experienced this redemption? Do you have knowledge of this salvation? Have you experienced Christ to be the mighty horn of salvation who broke through all of your rebellion? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins, being delivered from the shadow of death, experienced the freedom of being able to now serve God without fear? Have you experienced this peace? If not, we call you to trust him today. And if so, let's praise God for it. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of all of our songs. So let's adore him today. Father, with an adoring heart, we say thank you today for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, for the great visitation that has happened, for the sunrise coming out of heaven to liberate those who are in darkness and those on the edge of death. I pray you would call us today to a renewed sense of joy, renewed sense of worship and wonder as we think about what you have done for humanity. Even now, Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to take the table, we are reminded of what you did in your first visitation, but we also look forward to your second. And when we take it anew with you, deepen our gratitude, we pray, for you and for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.